This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open your Bibles or fire up your devices to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. Um, we, I mentioned last week, we have picked up the pace significantly as we are finishing up the book of Acts. So last week we covered two chapters, uh, just a ton of material, but you guys listened really fast and so it worked well. And uh, today I'm going to cover two chapters again. And just so you'll know, in terms of your thinking about uh, Christmas and such, uh, the 15th, uh, we'll focus on Christmas, the 22nd, and of course Christmas Eve. Uh, but So there will be Christmas emphasis if you want to bring family and friends. Any Sunday's a great time, but those particularly will have a Christmas outreach, and so there will be a, uh, an aspect of uh, you know, outreach then or, uh, for those who don't know the Lord. So um, the 21st, uh, Acts 21 and 22. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into a ton of material. This is a fascinating, uh, fascinating passage. Let's pray. God, we again thank you this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, for you have been good to us. We just think about we have received, well, all that we've received in light of what we deserve just communicates and shouts of your love for us and to us. Lord, as we look at your word today, we pray that you would speak to us. Thank you for the way you have spoken to us as we've studied the book of Acts. And we pray today that as we look at this significant passage, that you would speak to us in a clear way, stir our hearts Lord, uh, by your Holy Spirit and change us. Give us a glimpse of Christ. Help us to see the Lord more clearly and change us in our response to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that deeply embedded in every one of us, deeply embedded in every one of us, is this idea that as a believer... If my intentions are right, and I do the right thing, I'll even add to it, if my intentions are right, and I do the right thing for the glory of God, it will go well. If my intentions are right, and I do the right thing, the outcome will be good. The problem with that sentiment, which we all share, and it usually shows up when things don't go the way we want them to go, and we review and go, but I did the right thing, and it still didn't go well. In Scripture, we find that godly motives and godly actions don't always secure our preferred outcome. Godly response does not always secure that we get the results that we want in this life. Life is not mechanical. And we know this intellectually, but our hearts do not, do not live this way so often. Life is not mechanical. Life is not a Coke machine where you just feed your coins, or now it's bills, I guess. You feed your coins or you feed your bills, that being the right intentions, the right motives, the right actions for the glory of God, and then you sort of make your selection of how you want things to come out and you press the button and there it is. It just drops down. Drop your coins in, do the right thing, and you'll get the result you want. 
That is not the way life works. See, here's the reality. Sometimes serving God in your job will not mean that you get the promotion. It will mean the very fact that you are serving God in your job will, will, will mean that you are overlooked for the promotion. Sometimes in life, you seek to do all that you can as a parent. You try to do everything you can to apply the Scripture, and yet your teenager is still not following the Lord. You put your coins in, but you didn't get what you thought you would get. Sometimes when you seek to communicate the Gospel to your extended family during these holiday times, it doesn't draw your family closer together. It drives a bigger wedge between you and your extended family. Sometimes you take care of your body through exercise and diet. For years you try to steward your body for the glory of God, and you get heart disease, and you get cancer, even though you faithfully took care of yourself for the glory of God. Now, we often think that the classic text, which explains this, what I'm talking about, you, the, the outcome in this life is not always what expected. Oftentimes we think the classic text is Job, because Job did everything that was right and everything went wrong for him, didn't it? But really the classic text is any of the Gospels. This is the story of Jesus. Jesus lives an absolutely perfect life, never sinning in word, thought, intention, or deed. And yet, if you look at the external circumstances of his life, you would say, that cost him his life. His honoring the Father, his glorifying the Father, led directly to his suffering for us. Well, that's the key. Well, for us. Didn't he suffer for us? Therefore, we don't have to suffer. Oh, no. He suffered for us, called us to take up our cross and follow him in this life with the guarantee and the promise that we would not suffer for eternity, but would experience his grace and his glory and perfection in eternity. The Bible shows us that in these kinds of situations, God is always doing more than we can understand. It's not put your coins in. That's the whole book of Job. The whole book of Job wants to undermine the interpretation that takes Proverbs as promises rather than observations of life. Proverbs are not promises. They're observations from life. So the book of Job wants to uh, turn all of that upside down and say that God is sovereign, so worship Him regardless. The story of Jesus turns that upside down and says that God is sovereign, So worship Him, and it will go well in eternity for you. And in the passage that we are reading today, the same thing is true of Paul, because Paul makes some strategic decisions that really bring bad results for him. He makes some strategic decisions that bring bad results. See, in the passage we're going to read today, it appears that Paul's motives are to serve God. It appears from what we can tell that Paul's motives are to obey directly, to obey the Spirit's leading. It appears that Paul's motives are to advance the gospel. It appears that Paul's motives are to build the church. It appears that Paul is going to do something very unorthodox in this passage to cultivate unity in the church. He is acting for unity in the church. And here is the result. He is misunderstood. He is slandered. He is falsely accused. He is beaten by a mob that wants to kill him, and he is arrested by the Romans and will never be free again the rest of his life. 
That's what happens to Paul for doing the right thing with the right motive. One author, Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on this passage, made the following observation about Paul and application to us. Choices made for the right reasons please our Father, whatever the immediate outcome may be. Choices made for the right reasons please our Father, whatever the immediate outcome may be. When we live for the glory of God, there will always be success. The question is, how do we determine success, define it, and what is our timeline for success? For there will always be success in the long term, in eternity, whenever we live for the glory of God in response to the gospel. Whenever we choose to obey God in light of the gospel, God is glorified. So that's fruitful. Secondly, God works in ways that we don't see with our obedience. That's fruitful. And lastly, God will be honored and glorified and reward in eternity actions done for him. Choices made for the right reasons. Please the Father, whatever the immediate outcome may be. And this passage that we're going to look at today has much to say for us in a narrative form about how do you relate to seeking to do the right thing and yet getting an undesirable circumstance in response. So let's look at what Paul does here. I'm going to look at, uh, and we'll read in three sections. Um, the first section is not too big. The next two will be very big. So listen along. Here's the first thing. The first section is about Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem. So Paul's first decision, his first choice is go to Jerusalem to strengthen the church. Go to Jerusalem to strengthen the church. That's his first decision. Verse 1 of chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, we were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down to Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we would not be persuaded, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. 
And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Okay, so this is Paul's first decision. He decides to go to Jerusalem to strengthen the church. In verse 1, he has just left the Ephesian elders. He had been with the Ephesian elders. He had, they had, everyone had wept that he was leaving. Verse 1 says, When we had departed from them, we set sail. The NIV translates that, after we had torn ourselves away from them. So there is this emotional tearing from the Ephesians that we read about last week. And then Paul says that he is going to go to Jerusalem. If you look back at 20, uh, 22, he had said to the people in Ephesus, the elders, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That's important. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he told the Ephesians, The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is constraining, compelling, driving me to Jerusalem. So that's where I am going. So he stops, the number of stops here, they stop in Tyre. We get this interesting note that they stay with the disciples, and they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The next thing we read after seeing a few more cities is that he goes to Caesarea. Uh, he stays with a guy named Philip, who we've read about earlier. He's an early evangelist. He has four unmarried daughters. These are probably younger girls. Just a shout-out to middle school, high school, and college young ladies. These four women were prophesying. God was using them to speak and, and bring impressions from him to people. So God uses young ladies, these unmarried ladies, um, that were probably younger. And so they're prophesying. And we don't get what they say, but we get this message that a guy who we've read about earlier, Agabus, comes down. And Agabus was a prophet who had, who had uh, directed them to, to relieve Jerusalem, or he had predicted there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. So um, what happens here is Agabus comes down and he does a prophetic sign. And he takes Paul's belt. This is probably a linen belt that he would have worn around him. Could have been a broad belt that he would wear around to, to uh, his, his outer garment or whatever. It probably wasn't a small leather belt. Because he ties his feet and he ties his hands together. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt. That's what he says. And he says it's from the Holy Spirit. Uh, looking verse 11. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. And so he says it is going to go very poorly for the person who owns this belt if you go to Jerusalem. You're going to be tied up and you're going to be arrested and given into the custody of the Gentiles. Well, that leads the people who hear this, Luke who's writing and his companions, that leads them to say, verse 12, when we heard this and the people there, probably Philip and, and his daughters and other people, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Don't do it, Paul. The Holy Spirit has come and said, this is what will happen to you. Now, didn't the Holy Spirit say go in chapter 20? And isn't the Holy Spirit saying here, you're going to be arrested? Yes. The Holy Spirit saying both of those things. Um, how do we understand? Is the Holy Spirit mixing his messages here? No. John Stott, one commentator on the passage, makes a very helpful distinction. He says there's a distinction between prediction and prohibition. 
Agabus is predicting what will happen, but not prohibiting Paul from going. He's just making clear to everyone what's going to happen when he gets there. This is very, very interesting. Because those around him assume that if that's what's going to happen, that couldn't be the will of the Lord. Paul, the Holy Spirit said you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That means the Holy Spirit saying not to go. And Paul says just the opposite in verse 21. I'm sorry, in verse 13. He says, what are you doing? They're all weeping. Don't go, Paul. Listen to the Holy Spirit. You're a man of God. The Holy Spirit says you're going to be you know, arrested and, and tied up. Don't go, Paul, to Jerusalem. He says, why are you all weeping? You are breaking my heart. Why are you trying to dissuade me from what the Holy Spirit has called me to do? He says, for I'm ready to not only be imprisoned, but to die. He's saying, yes, the Lord is saying that's what's going to happen. And yes, the Lord's saying, go do it. And I'm ready to die if it costs me my life. See, what they have here is misguided love. They want Paul's safety. Paul, if we're doing the right thing and we're hearing the Holy Spirit, wouldn't it go well for us? Right? Can't you assume that safety is best? No, obedience is best. Safety's not best. And that's what he says. He says, this is what I'm called to do. I mean, they're assuming that the best thing for the cause of the gospel is for Paul to be free so that he can preach the gospel. That's reasonable. The Holy Spirit said you're going to get arrested. And Paul, you, you, you want to reach as many people as possible. How are you going to reach people in jail? They don't know he's going to write a chunk of the New Testament in jail. So he's going to reach a lot of people. We might not have had those letters if he's not chained in jail. And so they are misguided. They are trying to save him from danger. They are trying to protect him. They're trying to offer the clear path of wisdom. The Holy Spirit says you're going to get arrested. Wouldn't it be better not to go? Well, he will not be persuaded. And so finally they say in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. They look and say the will of the Lord trumps our idea of what would be best. The will of the Lord trumps a pursuit of safety. They see it's a matter of obedience for Paul, and that trumps comfort, or that trumps their desired results. See, here's what we can't put together so often in our lives. God calls Paul to go. God calls Paul to suffer. God calls Paul to go to Jerusalem, but God calls Paul to suffer in that because he's about to be arrested. And we don't see how those can work together. If God is in it, if God is speaking, won't it go well for us? I mean, if God is in this, wouldn't things be going better in my family? If God is in this, wouldn't things be going better in my job? If God is in this... If God is really in this, wouldn't it be going better in the church and in my relationships in my church? I mean, if God is in this, wouldn't it go well? Well equals the way I want it to go. Oh, it'll go well. It's going to go great for Paul because he's following the Lord. He's making choices that please the Father. The Spirit compelled him to go. Even when he gets a word of the danger, the Lord is leading him. It's going to go well for him, and it's going to go well for others, though they can't see that. God was calling Paul to go and suffer because he's going to bear tremendous fruit in the church, and he's going to bear tremendous fruit among the lost through the whole process. 
even though it's so hard to see. Paul wants to go to benefit and to build up the church. He's taking the offering, is what he's actually doing, and he wants to build up the church in Jerusalem. He's got the right motives, but it's going to be a challenge. And those around him with their misguided love are trying to protect him from what the Lord is leading him to. Second decision, he will go to Jerusalem to build up the church. Second decision, he will go to the temple to unify the church. He will go to the temple to unify the church. Look at verse 17 where he broke off. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice that the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as they could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Okay, this is a classic text of right motive, right action, very bad result. 
very bad result. He goes to the temple to unify the church, to build unity in the church. Here's what happens. He shows up and he goes and sees James and the elders. So these are the two heavyweights, the two team captains, the two guys that lead the two branches of the church, if we could say it that way. They're not really branches, but like they are factions in some places that worked out that way. That we have the leader of the Gentile Christians, Paul, and the leader of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, that is... Um, that is uh, James. And so Paul tells them everything that's happened, and they're very excited about what's happened. They all glorify the Lord. Paul is there to give the offering. In chapter 24, you can look this up later, chapter 24, verse 17, it says that he came to deliver an offering. He had c- collected an offering for a couple years to bless the, the church in Jerusalem to help them in their financial need. So he comes representing all the Gentiles to give this huge cash gift to bless the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and to take care of them. He shows up for that and he hears the most disheartening thing happening. He hears the most discouraging thing imaginable. There has been a slander campaign against Paul in Jerusalem. And he's totally mistrusted. That, that's, what, that's what we hear. Verse 20, it says that when they heard it, they glorified God for all that Paul had told them about the Gentiles. And they say, you see, brother, how many things Thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. There's thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What shall be done? They've been told a lie about Paul, and everybody believes it. They've been told that he says, don't follow the law and don't circumcise your children. Paul never says don't circumcise your children. And if you're new, you're a guest unfamiliar to the Bible, you may be wondering, why is this a topic of conversation? It seems like uh, that's just kind of a personal decision for a family to make. In, In the Old Testament, this is a religious practice that it marked out the Jewish people as Jewish. They circumcised their sons. And so that marked them out from the other nations. And so they're saying, you're telling all the Jews not to circumcise their kids. Paul never says that. Paul never says don't obey the law. Paul never says don't circumcise your sons. Paul says don't require the Gentiles to do that, to become Christians, and don't trust that that makes you right with God. You are saved by faith. So Paul would say circumcision doesn't matter one way or the other. It has no bearing, physical circumcision has no bearing on whether or not you're a Christian. It's, it's, it's unnecessary, but you certainly could do that. So what they're saying is a lie. He never says, forget the law of Moses. Paul never taught them that that none of that matters for the Christian. What he said is, you cannot be saved by obeying the law. That's what he taught. Jesus obeyed the law in your place. That's what he taught. And he also taught that none of the ceremonial law is valid or necessary anymore. You don't have to offer sacrifices because Jesus was sacrificed. You don't have to obey dietary laws. You don't have to obey all of these laws, these ceremonial laws. They're not necessary for obedience. But he didn't say to a Jew, you can have no customs whatsoever in your heritage. That's what they said. So they they were saying, you're against all of the things. It's just not of, of, of Judaism. It's not accurate. He just said, none of these must Gentiles embrace to become Christians. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, is what he's saying. Gentile straight path to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, through Jesus. No Jewish customs, no circumcision, no ceremonial law, 
No ceremonial law for anyone, but none of that is necessary. So James presents this opportunity to him. He says, look, there's a way that you could demonstrate solidarity. There's a way, there's something you could do that would squelch the rumors. Okay, what is it? Well, here's his idea. There's four guys under a Nazarite vow. You go in with them. This is radical. You purify yourself in the temple. You go through a purification exercise in the temple, which had to do with washing and such. And then you say that these guys are doing a Nazarite vow, which is not a bad thing. Paul probably took one himself. We saw that a couple of chapters ago. When their vow is older, over, they're going to shave their heads and they're going to give an offering. You pick up the tab. You pay their offering. You purify yourself. And everybody will say, hey, Paul doesn't hate the temple. Paul's not opposed to us. Paul's down there purifying himself. Paul's down there picking up the tab for the guys who are shaving their heads at the end of their Nazarite vow and paying an offering. It'll demonstrate that you are, that you are for the Jewish Christians. So Paul agrees to do this. This is very controversial. Some commentators said Paul was wrong, Paul was a coward, Paul was a hypocrite, and Paul went back on what he taught in Galatians. That's a minority opinion, but some believe that. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I don't believe that Paul is going against, that he is not living up to his own teaching in Galatians, that he is somehow putting himself under ceremonial law for his uh, forgiveness of sins. That is not what he's doing there. Paul's motivation is that, that he wants the gospel to reach Jews. He wants the gospel to penetrate. Paul is concerned that people meet Christ. And so Paul is willing to do things that aren't necessary for him as a Christian so that others may believe. Paul is, this is 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is becoming all things to all men. Paul is potentially in love bearing with the weak. Those who have a weak conscience, Paul, but those who have a weak conscience who think God requires them to do certain things that God does not require them to do, Paul is, is coming to their side and loving them and demonstrating his care for them. Paul wants unity in the church, so he will do something completely unnecessary. Paul does not have to do this. But he will do it because he loves the people of God. And he wants Jew and Gentile to experience actual fellowship and unity in Christ. This is how one commentator explains what's going on here. The solution to which they came to was not a compromise in the sense of sacrificing a a doctrinal or moral principle, but a concession in the area of practice. He's conceding on a practice that's unnecessary. That's what he's doing. What Paul did here was an example of the apostles' willingness to concede where no vital principle was at stake. These rituals were mere customs now that Christ had come. If asked, Paul would readily declare that they had no power to atone. He himself had entered into a Nazarite vow himself. He himself had circumcised Timothy. He could reason that nothing in a Nazarite vow contradicted a fundamental principle of Christian faith. It was a vow of thanksgiving, and are not Christians to be thankful. Perhaps he argued that these Jewish Christians were weaker brothers, and he was willing to become all things to all men. Paul was prepared to put his reputation and dignity aside and put the spiritual family first. Whatever else we might say about this incident, we cannot take away from Paul that he did it because he believed that the church was more important than his own reputation. For the sake of the gospel... For the unity of the church, Paul acts in this way. And what happens? 
it just totally backfires. He gets there, and some people from Asia recognize him, some Jews from Asia, and they had seen him with this guy that they knew, or a guy from Asia, a Greek guy, named Trophimus. And so they said, this guy is against the temple. He's desecrating. He's defiling the temple. Now here's the irony. Paul is there going through an unnecessary, unrequired ritual to cleanse himself to be in the temple, and they're saying he's defiling the temple. It's the exact opposite of what he's doing. His intentions are great, and they're saying this guy brought a Greek into the temple. There was like a four-and-a-half-foot wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the inner courts, that, and, and, and there were signs on there that said if a Gentile is brought past this wall, he'll be killed, he'll be executed. And so they're saying Paul brought Gentiles. They defiled the temple and brought Gentiles into the temple. They're, they're lying about him. That wasn't even true. Luke says here that Trophimus was with him, but he never, it wasn't that he went into the temple. He explains what happened. So they bring a false accusation. They charge him with defiling the temple when he's doing exactly the opposite. He's acting for the good of God's people. He's acting to reach those who question him, who have heard things about him, and so they doubt him. So he's acting in a way to gain trust with the audience so that he can preach the gospel, and they falsely accuse him and start beating him up. The exact opposite. He goes to build unity, and the unbelievers ultimately reject him. It backfires. They attempt to kill him, verse 30. All the city was stirred. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him. Then all of a sudden, the tribune comes down. The tribune was a guy next to the temple. In the corner of the temple was this barracks of Rome, a Roman outpost. The tribune oversaw a thousand troops. And he comes down with centurions. A centurion oversaw 100 troops. So there's at least two centurions, so there's probably at least minimal 200 soldiers come down. They start breaking up the melee. They grab Paul to protect him, and the people are going insane. They have to carry Paul up to the barracks because people, they stopped beating him, but they didn't settle down. So the law came, everybody didn't settle down. They're still freaking out, and uh, at this Paul guy, everybody's so upset by him. So what's his decision? What's his motive? He's coming to build the church with his offering. He's coming to unify the church by doing something op- optional so that his reputation wouldn't be undermined, so that he could, he could gain perhaps a hearing from those who had believed false things about him. He does the right thing, and it doesn't go well. His third decision is to testify to the mob. Not like... Uh, not like criminal mob, but to testify to the mob that's gathered out there, the, the lost. He's testifying to the mob to reach the lost. Look what happens, verse 27. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. A citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when, they had given, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in, he, in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. 
born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and said to him, and saw him, I'm sorry. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to bear and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So his third decision here is to testify to the mob in order to reach the lost. I mean, Paul thinks, after the tribune comes in and they sort of rescue him a little bit, he thinks that certainly a reasonable explanation, he could preach the gospel, he could persuade them in some way, and we know he's trying to persuade them by the language that he uses. He's really trying to build a bridge and identify with them. He says, first of all, that he was uh, a Jew. I'm a Jew. 
Uh, he says he was uh, brought up and educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel is an absolute rabbi rock star. He's the leading rabbi of the day. And he said, I studied under him in the strict manner of our fathers being zealous for like you all are here today. He was raised a Pharisee. He believed strictly. He applied God's law strictly. And then he goes on to say, I was even actually persecuting those who believed. I went out and I arrested them. I watched over when Stephen was killed. And if you don't believe me, talk to the high priest. He's talking their language. He said, look, and I'm, I'm zealous. I was just like you guys. The high priest and the, the council sent me out to arrest Christians. I was endorsed by them. He's not some fly-by-night guy. He's got a rich, rich heritage. But here's what happened. I'm traveling to Damascus to arrest people, he says, and a bright light appears to me, and I hear a voice, and I'm blinded, and I say, who are you? And it's Jesus. And Jesus says this, why are you persecuting me? This is a powerful statement of how Jesus identifies with his church. He was arresting Christians, and Jesus says, that's persecuting me. You hurt God's people, you attack God's people, you're attacking Jesus. That's what he says to him. So he basically uh, calls him to go to um, uh, he goes to another city and he he meets uh, to to go into Damascus and there he meets Ananias and look how he describes Ananias verse twelve a devout man according to the law well spoken of by all the Jews so the guy that talked to me when I got in Damascus all the Jews like him all the Jews respect him I'm a Jew trained under Gamaliel. I was the strictest of them. I'm persecuting Christians, endorsed by the council of elders, all of this kind of stuff. Jesus appears to me and sends me to another guy who's devout that everybody respects. Look, here's his point. I wasn't looking for Jesus. I wasn't looking for the way. I wasn't a seeker trying to find truth and I came in contact with Christ. I'm opposed to Jesus. I'm attacking Christians. I'm on a rampage. And Jesus blinds me, appears to me. Jesus came finding me. He summoned me. What he's doing here is he's saying, look, all I'm doing is responding to divine revelation. I'm zealous like you guys, but God opened my eyes. And so Ananias prays for him. He goes into that. Um, he tells him that you are, he uses all of this language to show his, uh, his heritage, his, the old covenant language. Verse 14, he's to see the righteous one. That's the one the old covenant says will come, Jesus. He hears a voice. He'll be a witness for him. So he's going to be the, a witness for him. Now, even after he's converted, verse 17, after all he's baptized, his sins are washed away. Even after that, verse 17, look what he says. I came to Jerusalem. I'm praying in the temple. I'm converted. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I'm on a mission from Jesus. He's appeared to me. I'm baptized. My sins are forgiven. And I come and pray in the temple. He's letting them know he's, he, has not, he has not acted as they thought. But he comes to the temple and Jesus says, basically, leave. These people won't believe. And so he says, ultimately, Jesus told him to go and reach the Gentiles. And as soon as he said that, everybody in the crowd goes nuts again. They start throwing up their jackets. They start throwing up dust in the air. And they start yelling just like they did against Jesus, away with him. Jews are okay with 
proselytizing Gentiles to make them Jews. They're not okay with inviting Gentiles to bypass Judaism and go and become a Christian, a believer in Jesus, without the ceremonial law and circumcision and such. And so they are enraged. They are enraged. He had a captive audience until he used the G word, Gentiles, and then they lost it. So Paul's doing the right thing, right? He's arrested, he's being taken into the barracks, and he decides, let me just speak up here and give testimony. And it doesn't go well. They hate him even worse. They start yelling for his death. And then the Roman authorities say, we know how to solve a problem. This is all confusing, so get out the whips and just beat this guy and find out what the reason is that all these people are mad at him. So all these people are yelling at him, so let's take him back here and flog him, which was sometimes deadly in itself. And find out. Paul says they stretch him out to whip him. Paul says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You cannot flog a Roman citizen. You cannot penalize or punish a Roman citizen without trial. He says, I'm uncondemned. And you want to beat me. Is that okay? Whoa, the guy comes in, the head guy, the tribune comes in and says, no, we didn't know you were a citizen. I'm really sorry, sir. Um, How are you a citizen? This guy bought his, which means he bribed someone for it. That's probably what it means. I had to bribe someone to get mine. Paul says, my daddy was a Roman citizen, basically. I was born one, which is the highest way to be born as a Roman citizen is through birth and not through purchase. So he's more of a Roman citizen in some ways, ultimately. He's, a, he's, a more legit, he's got a more legit pedigree than the Roman soldier that's about to enforce his beating. And so that's where the passage ends. Choices made for the right reasons please the Father, whatever the immediate outcome may be. Paul chose to go to Jerusalem because the Spirit led him to do so, even though it doesn't make sense to those around him. Even though those who loved him most said, don't do it! He went. He wanted to bring the offering to the believers in Jerusalem. Paul loved the people of God and would take costly steps for their well-being. So he went to Jerusalem knowing what would happen through prophetic word, even though those around him said not to. Paul chose to do the cleansing ritual and to pay the four men's offering in order to demonstrate his love for those who falsely accused him. He was committed to the unity of the church and he would take costly steps to maintain unity in the church and to get a hearing among others. Paul chose to testify to those who beat him to build bridges, to proclaim Christ, and yet it infuriated them all the more. They called for his death, and it almost led to a Roman flogging, which could have been deadly had he not been a citizen and brought that up. Paul would take costly steps to preach the gospel to those who need to know the Lord. Jesus, the gospel, the church, the mission was so precious to Paul. And when we read this story, we don't want to say, let's go and be a Paul. We want to say, may the Jesus who captivated Paul's heart, may the risen Christ who ruled and reigned so grip our hearts that like Paul, we would be willing to take costly steps for the good of the church, costly steps for the unity of the church, costly steps to bring the gospel to those who don't know him. That's what Paul does in this passage. He is so captivated by the person of Christ. He is so grateful for his conversion. His world has been turned upside down. He is totally opposed to Jesus, not looking for Jesus. Jesus comes looking for him and gives him new life, and that's your story as well. You may not have been physically harming Christians, but let me tell you, there was nothing good in you that was pursuing God on your own. God pursued you, and God pursued me. 
And that pursuit, that guy, he can never get past that. He's still talking about it. He's going to tell it again a couple chapters later. He's so amazed by God's grace for him. He's so impassioned by the call of God to take this good news to other people that he will do crazy things. He will do things that, that are foolish in the eyes of those around him. He will do unnecessary things like the cleansing. He will act in a way of love for other people for the good of the gospel, to honor and glorify the Lord, to maintain unity, to build the church, to reach the lost. Let me ask you a few questions to close today. For the sake of Christ and his gospel, what costly steps is God calling you to take? What costly steps is God calling you to take for his church? Paul took costly steps drawn by the person of Christ because of the gospel. Whom is God calling you to love in the church? That can be a costly step. How much is he calling you to give financially? Give of your time. Give of your gifts. How is God calling you to invest your life, as Paul did, motivated by Christ, for his church? He brought the offering against the counsel of others to bless the church. How is God calling us to serve? Whom is God calling us to encourage or to befriend? Because of Christ's love for us, how are we seeking? What would devotion to God's people look like? Please hear this. Devotion to God's people is devotion to God. Do you know that? Devotion to Jesus will always express itself in devotion to his people. In this passage, a profound theological point is made. Jesus identifies with the church. We are the body. Why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you hurting the church? He doesn't even say, why are you hurting the ones I bled and died for? He says, why are you opposed to me? And when we oppose the people of God, we oppose the Savior. And yet when we embrace and love and serve and build and are devoted and care for the people of God, we are doing so as worship to the Savior. It's one of the most profound points made in the whole passage is what Jesus says to him. Shouldn't be any surprise. What Jesus says is the highlight. Number two, what costly steps is God calling you to make to maintain unity? Paul did something unnecessary because he wanted to see Jew and Gentile. He wanted to, he wanted to remove concern for the Jewish Christians who had judged him, who had slandered him. I mean, really, verse 21 of chapter 21 They have been told about you, that you teach all these things. It wasn't true. People were talking. People were talking about Paul and saying untrue things. And so he had a a damaged reputation among the people. So what was he willing to do? He could have said, well, that's tough. I'm not going to do that. I don't have to do that. He didn't. I'm not going to do that. I'm here to preach the gospel, but he didn't. He decided to do what what he did not have to do. So what would it mean for me to maintain unity among God's people? Would it mean dying to a preference? That's what he does. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's their preference, their action, but he'll do it. I mean, really, if it's not a matter of conscience informed by Scripture, is it really worth separating over? Is it really worth putting your foot down and making a stand? My goodness, we are willing to make a stand on so many things that are, are not central, that they're not, they're not worth. For Paul, it's not worth it to 
it, it's not worth it for Paul to act in a way to resist this recommendation, even though he could say, oh, I don't have to do that. True. But he does it because of love for the Jewish Christians. I mean, if it's not a matter of conscience, if it's not informed by Scripture, can't I just let it go? Can't I just let it go? That's what Paul does. What do we do to maintain unity? People had been speaking about Paul, and it divided the people of God. It had an effect. It eroded their trust in Paul because people spoke and people listened. This is very convicting to me because it is very easy for me to speak about people outside of their hearing in a way that, that could erode trust in them or could question their character by saying something, by tossing out a judgment, by tossing out a description, by giving my opinion of them to others. I've, I've recently been convicted, even over the holiday, I've watched this. I've had to watch this because things that are coming out of my mouth. I've said several times, even over the holidays, hey guys, to my family, to speaking to myself, look, we're not going to talk about anybody that's not here unless we're going to be honoring them and blessing them. We're just not going to do that. Because we think, well, I'm just giving my opinion. No, people gave their opinions about Paul and it divided the church. Granted, Paul's a leader, but it divided the church. They don't trust you. They believed lies. They say you tell Jews not to circumcise their children. Paul didn't say that, but they believed it. People believe lies. He brought a Jew, he, I mean, he brought a Gentile into the temple. No, he didn't. But one guy spouts it out, and before you know it, there's a mob beating him. That doesn't happen now, but, there's, but there are other kinds of verbal mobs that we can all join in. See, Paul, there is, there is a unity that Paul is willing to go to an extreme to maintain, whereas others are willing to say and to believe lies to destroy, including in the temple when he is arrested. There's something bigger than my preference. There's something bigger than my evaluation or sinful evaluation of someone else. And it's the unity of the church. It's not just that Paul was willing to take steps to maintain it. Jesus shed his blood to provide the unity and calls us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, not to tear it down by our speech or by our preferences. Here, we're to love. We're to love the person who has a weaker conscience and thinks they have to do something they don't have to do. Now, we want to bring the gospel of grace to people and tell them they're free. But by the same token, sometimes love just calls us to act in a manner that Paul does here. He's being all things to all people that he may save some. What steps is God calling us to take to testify to his gospel? Where is there an opportunity in my life? Where is there an opportunity in your life where speaking up might be costly? At this point, the cops have him. Just, just go quietly to, to the prison. They're here rescuing you from the mob. Don't turn and face the mob with one more speech. And that is costly. It almost got him flogged. So how might God be calling me to share, you to share, even if it costs, even if it costs safety, even if it costs reputation? Where is God calling me to speak up for the gospel, even if it costs in a relationship? Because motivated by love, he loves the Jewish people. He wants them to know the Savior. Maybe God needs to warm my heart, stir my heart, stir your heart, so that we see he is so valuable that any opportunity to speak of him would be a great joy, regardless of the cost to me. So what costly steps could God be calling us to take for his church? 
like Paul does in going to Jerusalem? Costly steps could God be taking us to maintain unity like Paul does in acting in the cleansing and paying the offering at the temple for the four guys? What steps is God calling me to take in testifying to gospel as Paul does on the steps to the captive audience? And here's maybe the biggest one of all. Where's God calling us to trust him so that even if our decisions don't seem to be producing good results, we trust God? Success is found in honoring God. Fruit is found in honoring God. It is not found in how it turns out. And don't judge prematurely because it will turn out well in eternity if we act for the honor of God. Acting by faith and not seeing results. Are you acting by faith and not seeing results in your family? Are you acting by faith and not seeing results in your relationships or in the church? Are you acting by faith but not seeing results in your job? Are you acting by faith but not seeing results with your neighbor and being a neighbor to other people, as God calls us to be? This passage calls us to trust and to realize that we are measured by eternal standards. Because if we're measured by just how things go, we'd say, Paul, you blew it. If you had never gone to Jerusalem... Man, you could have been out floating around in Gentile world where you were called preaching the gospel, planting churches with no problems. Should have listened to your friends, Paul. They loved you. You should have taken a stand and not gone and done that temple thing and exposed yourself. Paul, you should have just quietly gone to jail. Maybe they would have let you go because it wouldn't have infuriated more of a riot and an emotional turmoil. You could have gone quietly. Maybe you could have gotten out after the first two mistakes. But Paul's acting for the glory of God, trusting by faith, taking costly steps to build the church and reach the lost, maintain the unity of the people of God. And God is honored, and it will bear fruit. And the same is true for you. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.